that's where you learn the market. Take care of the customer first, do your research, you become an expert. That's a, a tattoo that's on my back. Take care of your customer and learn the market. I love this company, not just because of what they do, uh, but two of my best friends run it, Nick Huber and Mitchell Baldridge. It's called Ari Koseg, and they have a singular mission to help real estate investors spend less money on taxes. If you're an investor, a broker, or a property owner, listen up. This is crucial information. A cost segregation study can help you unlock the hidden value in your property by enabling you to write off components of your building faster. This means you'll pay less in taxes and have more cash in your pocket to reinvest or distribute to your investors. The team at RE Coseg are experts in this highly specialized field. They only use engineers to perform their studies, and they use the highest industry standards for their reports. Over the past year, they've completed over 600 Coseg studies and have saved their clients more than $65 million in taxes. For smaller properties, they do site visits fully virtually, which makes it extremely fast and easy to get your Coseg completed. They also have an experienced team for larger in-person site visits. Big or small, they make it extremely quick and easy. And the best part, their initial analysis is absolutely free. They'll examine your property and show you how much you could be saving. Visit recostseg, that's R-E-C-O-S-T-S-E-G.com. One of my favorite things to do is raise capital. Always been something I love doing. I love putting together deals. But one thing that is always tough for me is putting together the actual pitch deck, which is really important when you're raising capital. Or whether it's a corporate overview or a track record deck or investor reporting collateral, but putting together any kind of deck for guys like me has always just been tough. And so finding a company that could do it and not only do it, but blow your mind and make some of the best pitch decks you've ever seen was really cool. Enter Better Pitch. Better Pitch has taken the lead and is making some of the best pitch books I've ever seen. And if you think that not having a great pitch book is important when either raising capital, showing off your company, showing off your track record, showing off to investors, you're mistaken. I think your pitch book is one of the most important pieces of collateral that you could have. So I highly recommend checking out Better Pitch. They have an incredible team. They will work with you. And if you're a Fort listener, and you tell them that, they will work with you on as many revisions as you need until you're 100% satisfied. So go check them out. One of the great joys of my life has been building Fort Capital, something that I have loved for a long time. One of the best parts about it is building it with our incredibly talented team across three offices, Fort Worth, Dallas, and Houston, and our team abroad. We've built an incredible enterprise focused around a mission of being the best real estate operator in the world. We really believe the better that we get at operating, the better that we get in investing. We've built some incredible technology that gives us the ability to see data that others can't and operate our company as efficiently as possible and deliver better customer service to our tenants and really everybody involved. If you want to know more about our thesis, I encourage you to go to our website, fortcapitallp.com, where we talk about why we've been investing in Class B industrial real estate since 2016, hyper-focused on it. You can learn how you can help us find deals, more about our technology and, and how we think about it. You can see job openings, 
highly encourage you to check out our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn. And you can do all of this by going to fortcapitallp.com. At what point did it become obvious to you that you were going to get into real estate? Well, the the education started when I was about four years old. When I, my dad, I'd be at the store and he'd say, son, you want to walk around with me? And I said, why do you, where are you going? What are we going to do? He said, well, we're going to go collect rent. I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, I bought a few little rent houses and that are behind the store and it'll help us get some passive income, you know, in addition to what we, we make in the store. And the store was meager earnings because mm-hmm. it had no parking. It was a walk up. And so it was amazing because they kept the store open every night all their life to Saturday night till nine o'clock because the Fishman Laundry was across the street. Had about 600 people work there mm-hmm. and they get paid at noon. So they'd come over to the store. We sold money orders and then they'd buy clothes for their kids or whatever they needed. And that's, they stay open Saturday. I don't think they would have made it. All right. Your first position as, as I've read through it was you were starting the farm and ranch division at, at Henry S. Miller. No, that wasn't the first position. Okay. Uh, in my junior year, I wanted to get some experience in real estate. And I was very, very disappointed that Henry Miller had told me that yeah, I could get, I could work there as an intern. But, you know, to check with him when I got out of school, but he was pretty sure that Charlie Jackson, the all-star halfback for SMU, who worked for him during the year, wasn't going to work in the summer. And so that's partly true and partly not true. But what happened is Charlie Jackson didn't work in the summer. And I called to get my job and start start work, and Henry Miller was in Europe and left no message. <laughs> and Vance Miller's son, you know, left no message. Yeah. He was gone to, to, he was a pilot, he was gone to training. And Henry Miller Sr., he was somewhere, he was gone too. And so I was so totally disappointed that they didn't leave a message that, that Charlie Jackson wasn't, wasn't gonna work the summer, that he didn't leave a message that I was hired. So I went went back home, you know, I was at home and I was dejected. I thought, well, you know, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go take some real estate course over at SMU in the morning. And I'll just wait till Henry Miller gets back in town. I go over there the next uh-huh. day and I registered at SMU and leave there, going through Snyder Plaza, which is right near SMU. And I'd look up and there's Ralph Porter Real Estate. I said, hmm, see if he needs somebody. So I go, <laughs> Uh, walk in with my T-shirt, and, you know, and cutoffs. And this little lady, about 80 years old, and she's so nice. And her name's Irma Langren. And she says, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I thought I had a job with a real estate company, but now I'm going to SMU in the morning. I get through at 11. I just wondered if I could help you all in real estate. This is about a mile from my house. And she said, well, hold on a minute. She goes back to the back, comes back. She said, well, Mr. Mr. Porter, will see you. I said, well, I didn't plan to see him right now. I'm not dressed appropriately. He said, well, come on back. I go back and Buddy Porter, and I tell him the story. I was supposed to have a job. And he said, look, I'll hire you, and I'll help you get your license, and I'll pay you $75 a month. <laughs> <laughs> and you post the, the receivables, you know, was the duplexes, all the duplexes that we ran around SMU. We, we collect the rent. So you'll just post the rents. I said, you got a deal. So that was my job for the summer. and so. 
I'm there three or four days. I start, you know, inquisitive me, you know, what property have listed. So I go through the, the listings that are posted, you know, manually. And there's this one property. I said, I just can't believe you got this property for sale. I said, who's the listing agent? Well, it's Irma Langman up there. Irma. I said, what about this property here? I said, I grew up on Goodwin. This property was at the corner. I'd go up there every day. I could, you know, and I'd sit there and I'd read Captain Marvel and Superman comic books for free in that little corner drugstore. I said, is this for sale? She says, yeah. I said, what's the price? She said, well, I think it's $50,000. Oh, my gosh. And I said, well, okay. Very good. So a couple of days later, have a date and walk in, you know, the house to pick pick him a date. And father's there. And he says, he'd seen me before and he knew me. He says, what are you doing this summer? I said, I'm in real estate. He says, really? <laughs> and he had a car lot on Ross Avenue, which Greenville turns into Ross, so it's not too far. And I said, yeah, I said, I'm going to learn all about it. He said, well, do you have anything for sale? I said, just happened we do. I said, there's a great little center right over here on Goodwin and Greenville. And I said, this has got the drugstore at the corner. It's got the Greenville Avenue garage here. It's got a little Greenville Avenue grocery right in the middle of it. He said, I know that property. He said, well, can you get me the numbers? I said, absolutely. So I gave him the numbers. About two weeks, I've got him signed up on a contract. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So now, about a week later, not, not you know, that I was after I'd seen him, I see somebody that my sister has friends that are coming back from the military. And I asked her, I said, keep your eyes open. She said, well, Mickey and Susan are coming back and they're going to need a house here. So why don't you call their mom? I called the mom and she says, well, I'll take a look at houses if you want to show me some houses. So I did research and showed her house on <laughs> she really liked. They come in about, week, about a week later. They said, we love this house. I said, okay. We, we were able to put that under contract on Azalea at Hillcrest at $26,000. Oh my God. So, <laughs> so uh, here I am about three and a half weeks. I've got two properties under contract and I'm just on top of the world. I'm thinking, well, I'm gonna get out of school here and uh, six weeks, I make about $7,000. And Mr. Porter, you know, said he had helped me close them. That's great. Well, about that time, I get a call from Henry Miller about the third, four, third week. And he says, Herb, I'm so sorry I didn't leave you a message. He said, but Charlie Jackson, you know, didn't work for us, and we got this position open for you. I said, Mr. Miller, you can't believe what's happened. I said, I've been here three and a half weeks. I already got two properties under contract. And I said, I'm going to make $7,000, and I'm going to New York with my buddies and blow it off. <laughs> and he says, really? <laughs> He says, well, I think when you get out of college, we'll have a place for you. I said, well, great. I'm holding you to that. So that was it. I went to New York. We had a great time. Blew it all. And blew, blew it all. And I finished with, <laughs> and we finished the, you know, my senior year and called him up. Yeah, we got a job for you. Well, what we've been thinking about is we've been thinking about setting up farm ranch division. Well, I, you know, I didn't know what end the, the cow, the head was on. And he said, you know, would you like to head that up? And I said, absolutely. So t I went out. My dad from college, he, he promised me, because when I was 13, he promised me a motor scooter. He, he didn't keep his word, but he promised me a Chevy, what do you call it, Chevrolet? I forget the name, a small little Chevrolet. And 
So I'd gotten it. So man, I'm I'm ready to roll. And so I go out and meet this farmer and I go up this farm road. This thing had been raining. I didn't know it. The car bottomed out. So I had walked to his house and he comes back, gets a tractor, pulls me out of the mud. And that was my entry into the farm. <laughs> Oh, and paint two pictures for us. One, how much do you think that center it on Goodwin is worth today? It was 50,000 back then. What would it sell for today? Golly, probably, probably. I know, I know because we were involved in the sale of the other 5 million. Okay. So 100X. And then where did ranch and farmland start back when you started up this division? People that are in at least DFW listening, where were farm and ranches in that they're no longer it there? It started Royal Lane. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's now 30 miles north of, no, about 20, 26 miles north of that. Okay. All right. So you get stuck. How long did you stay in farm and ranch? And- I stayed in farm and ranch. It was Evolution. <clears throat> One of my first customers, because I would get listings and I went to Henry and I said, you know, I think that. What I need to do instead of me spending every day out there traveling, trying to meet farmers, is get a list of all the tax addresses for every farm in Collin County, Denton County, Grayson County, all these areas on the north side. And and I'd send them a letter that I'm head of the Farm and Ranch Division, and I have a lot of buyers for your farms. And if you're interested in selling, Send me the enclosed stamped envelope back. Man, they started, I sent that in a letter to all these people where the tax building was sent. They started sending me those back, and that's how I got all the people that wanted to sell. And then I started advertising them in the paper. I get listings and, you know, farm, it's farm range section. And one day a guy calls me, and his name is Davis Crow. Well, just happened to be Trammell Crow's brother. And I didn't know who Trammell Crow was at that time. <laughs> and so, Davis became a great customer of mine, and actually we bought a farm in Greenville together. We went out one day, and it was pouring down raining, and he said, you know, came by my house, picked me up, and he said, should we go out? And I said, yeah, let's go out. Let's, you know, we'll be fine. So we go to the county seat at, at Delta County in, in Cooper, Texas, about an hour and a half drive from Dallas, and we... Then asked, where's Farmer Jones' farm? So they told us, and we went there. Well, it ends up that, you know, it's, it's a mud road, and I've already had experience with the mud mm-hmm. roads. So we decided we just walk up to the, to, the, to the farm. And it was about, you know, maybe a half a mile, yeah. you know, up the road, which wasn't too far. And so get there and look at the farm and had a shack falling down. We walked back, and now, you know, it was raining, and we're both just dripping wet, you know, we're, Hot, my, I had mud about five times what my boot was. It was just up to it. So he looked at me and said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, why don't we buy it? He says, okay. So we bought the farm and we had a cod farm out there, <laughs> you know, for a long time. And then we sold it for four times our money. But I loved <laughs> the evolution of that work because people would say to me, I don't want to buy something passive. And they said, I'd like income property. So I'd go work income properties. And then somebody would say, you know, I don't want to buy land or I don't need an investment right now, but I need you to help me move my company or buy, get me a building for my company. So I started to branch out and every one of them I treated like a separate division and became pretty good at each one and successful in sales or leasing in each one. And that was the basis of my background. 
that gave me the ability to really move into income properties and user properties and things like that. What do you think you were good at at that time that all these years later still translates to new folks getting in the industry or brokers? Like what, what are the timeless lessons that haven't really changed? Timeless lessons are to, you know, really do a lot of research and learn the values because you become the expert. You know, somebody can get, get in a real estate and be there six months, but if they spent their time chasing a deal in an area to make it, to make a deal or two deals in the area, you become an expert, you have a chance to make a lot, do a lot of business there. And over time, you're able to become an expert in so many different areas. It all comes together and the dots connect. Yeah. And then the farm and ranch were most of the folks buying at that time, speculating on the growth of DFW. Like what was the the play back then? When I hear of David, what'd you say? Davis Crow? Davis Crow. Was he speculating or he just wanted a farm? He, he was speculating. Okay. Yeah, he was speculating. He would buy and sell. So how many of those deals that you did all those years ago, now they're towers and like, could you have ever seen it coming? To all of them have houses. Yeah. All, all of them have just Salina. Yeah. Yeah. Davis, I remember the farm. I sold them up there. It was $155 an acre. And, you know, <laughs> 455 is, is a major development right now. Yeah. You like Salina, right? Like it a lot. Why? Massive, massive growth. Yeah. It's one of the, probably one of the best growth cities in the country. Is everything going to keep going up in North Dallas? Like everything will just keep trickling North Dallas, or do you think we'll see more South growth? Uh, it's more, it's more North, north. Mm -hmm. until we get to Oklahoma. Yep. Yeah, and they've just, I just got information this morning that they are talking about, you know, going ahead and extend the toll road all the way up to, to the North. There's legacy Hills up there, which is a 3000 acre development with 7,000 houses and 4,900 apartments. And it's, it's way up there. And the toll road will go all the way up. The access roads are up there, but they're talking about going ahead with the other center lanes and take the toll road all the way up because it's growing so fast. Those people, if they don't do that, it'll take them 15, 20 minutes just to get down, or maybe more, just to get down to 380. Yep. All right. So in the 70s, you were working for Henry, mm -hmm. and he gave you an opportunity to buy a quarter of Highland Park Village. Yeah. For a hundred thousand dollars, right? I think the latest value. Who knows what the latest valuation is? Right, probably latest is probably four hundred million. And you said I'm too busy. I got too much going on. <laughs> no, what I told him, I said, I said, Henry, I said, why are you buying this? I said, this is a horrible shopping center. What? Yeah, because in uh, 1974, I'd moved out to University Park when I was 11 years old. So that was in 1950. So I, 10 years, I would ride my bicycle up to the Highland Park Village and the theater, you know, and it was, it was horrible. It was the, the, the Howard Foundation, which was a holding company for the, for the property, neglected it. And, you know, shopping center weren't really booming at that time. That was a very early stage development. And I saw it deteriorate over the 10 years uh, after I got out of college and went into the brokerage business, and it continued. And when Henry bought it in 1974, it was really, really bad. And I couldn't get tennis to go there. And he had the vision and foresight, but I, I didn't have it yet in, yep. in the development. And you have to, it takes a long time to get that, to be a consistent, serial 
developer or purchaser uh, to see the vision and make the right decisions. And I didn't see it. And I told him, I said, let me think it over. And I actually started developing, you know, and buying property six months after I was with Henry Motor Company. I take my commissions and put it in real estate deals. And because I would become the expert in that region, I would see something. And then what I would do is I would get a seller to take terms. I'd yep. give them a thousand, two thousand dollars for a lot and give them, you know, let me take, pay it out over 10 years. And that's how I started accumulating with a little bit of money assets because I always felt I could make the payment to them out of my brokerage commissions, yep. which I did. But I was, I just wasn't, didn't have enough wisdom at that time. And I come back to Henry and I said, look, Henry, you know, this property here, I've tried to make leases and nobody wants to be here. And I said, I, I'm making such a high return on the 7-Elevens I'm building. <laughs> and I said, but I'll lease it for you. And so I did. I, I, I didn't go in and I leased it two times. And he was right and I was wrong. But well, I learned a lesson. What changed? Where is the inflection point of Holland Park Village just for, for a history real estate nerd? Inflection point was, that was uh, Ken Hughes was with me and he was a talented guy and he and I worked on Holland Park together. And we brought in Ralph Lauren. Okay. And Ralph Lauren, you know, the rents at the center were about $20, $25 a foot. Now, one lease, Ray, Ray Washburn told me he's made the deal at 800 a foot for a jewelry store. But, but around the, the lease is probably around 250 300 over there now. And I was able to just, you know, that center just continued to change. But what, what changed was uh, Ralph Lauren, did, we had a percentage rent clause. And they did so much volume that they doubled the rent. So the new rent as we renewed them was 50 bucks. And that's where it took off from. Okay. And that's how Henry made changes because it was a different period of time and values were increasing and rents were increasing. As we made higher rents, he was able to borrow more money. And he continued to refinance and refinance it. Most of the money went into remodels. Yep. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the the center we know today is not what it looked like back in the not 70s. at all, not at all. You said something. You just said it takes a while for people to have that wisdom mm -hmm. to know when how to see into the future. Mm -hmm. If you could like condense, what does that mean? Like, what do the best have? What what does it take to see out into the future and and be pretty confident in today? Well, it takes time to gain all the knowledge that. And that's current and that that you can see is the demand is going to be at a site within a certain period of time because you know people go broke because assets become a liquid and mm -hmm. they have debt right and so it's the roads where the roads are going the time of the roads it's the subdivisions and how fast they're growing and how fast and knowing what it takes people wise dollar wise for spending per capita to support a grocery store or a drugstore, you know, which are the most prolific type of centers, the community shopping centers. The strip center, you know, really was always there with the C stores as anchors. I, I started off doing those. Mm -hmm. And those type of investments still today are very, very popular. And they're really a very good investment for a small investor to have in their portfolio. Because each one of those might throw off, uh, it was free and clear, $150,000, $200,000 a year. Yep which is really nice passive income. Yep. But on the vision side, it's about, you know, the city was growing and, you know, most cities didn't grow like Dallas. Yeah. Dallas is at the ahead of the pack. 
Yeah. And so you didn't really learn that in too many big cities. Right. And I, and I was only in Texas. Yeah. So I was seeing it here and not exposed to exactly what had happened in other cities. And it took a longer time to really build up the confidence to go take on debt and think you're going to be right in Dallas, Texas. And then, you know, you have the micro markets right. and the micro markets were little, you know, little sit, tiny towns. I mean, there were, no, there were nothing. Yeah. And then as Dallas grew out to the city limits, these, these micro markets began to grow. And that's really where so much of our activity has been over the last uh, 25 years. Yep. We're going to get into that. Yeah. Grubb and Ellis ends up buying Henry S. Miller. You go on to Grubb and Ellis. Mm -hmm. And I really just wanted to spend a little bit of time. I guess there was a decision made at Grubb and Ellis that they were going to demote you or take some of your decision-making power a little bit back. And it took you all of about 10 seconds to go, well, I'm out of here. I'm going to go start my own thing. Well, here's what happened. Uh, first of all, there's a commitment. I believe in commitments. And we, Virginia Cook, headed up the residential division. I headed up the commercial division. Of Grubb and Ellis. Uh, no, of Henry Miller. Okay. So we had the vote with Henry because we knew that he would never do anything without our opinion. So he sent us both, two of us out to, to the Grubb and Ellis board when they came in in 1979 to merge. And we went out there and we set, set out with all the, you know, just amazing group of people. They were number two in California behind CBRE. CBRE was Coldwell Banker then, it wasn't CBRE. And we assembled the board, basically get down to the bottom line. They said, Herb, we hear you develop. I said, yeah, we do it. And we bring in partners and all these people, you know, get in deals with us. We manage it, it grows, it grows the Henry Miller Company. And we are able to, you know, have great relationship with them and that a lot of these, you know, proliferate into multifamily investments and, and also land investments. But yeah, they, that's what we do. And that's really a good program. I said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, we, if a broker wants to develop here, we help them find an office and we hope, hope that they'll use us as a company to, you know, help them. I said, well, okay, well, that was interesting. And so. <laughs> We got outside, finished the meeting, and I look at Virginia, and she looked at me and said, well, this isn't going to work. And so we go back, and so it didn't work. You know, we just went on to our merry way. We told Henry, you know, that that was totally incompatible. And so- Did um, he agree? Yeah, of course he did. And he was, you know, very supportive of me and very supportive of Virginia. And so that was, that was it. So five years later, they came back and they said, they wanted to talk and said, well, we, everything you told us you're doing, we want to do just like you. And broker wants to develop, well, as long as it, we don't have to put the money in because the Grubman Nelson Company had gone broke. Hell else had gone broke because the company was over in Oakland. They moved to San Francisco. And uh, so he was anti-development. Anti so they changed the policy. And, uh, and I thought that... Uh, it was it was good for Henry to cash out because he he basically put every penny back into the company, you know, because of the growth that we were having, and I was bringing a lot of people. He was financing all that, and so I think that that was a good thing. It was timely because in a brokerage company, you know, there might have been a million made or a million lost or a, you know break even. 
never any big number because the costs are too high. And these cycles, you know, we were hitting ends up that we had had a 10 million pre-tax year that year. And so that, you know, on the five months, it was $50 million. And I thought it was a good opportunity. I was 10% owner and I never, get, I never thought that stock would be worth a penny. And so I found 5 million on the street and we, and Henry got, you know, got cashed out. And then we, you know, we owned stock in the company. And so we own 45% of Gravinellis, which was a American stock exchange company when we started. And then we went on New York exchange. I went on the board, Henry, five of us went on the board. There were 10 of them, five of us, 15. And we were, you know, there were 1900 people. We were 1600 at that 1700 at that point. So we were 3,600 in the company. And then we started buying companies. Atlanta, Miami, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, on on, got up to nine thousand. I was the the chairman of all the commercial retail in the country. I never moved from Dallas, and so I set up division heads in every region. So the honeymoon started to end after about a year, when the market changed, and wasn't a ten million profit. It was down to two million, and then. We started to lose. We lost about for about 10 quarters because of the Tax Reform Act, you know, of 86. And it, we merged in 84. And you stayed till what, 90? Stayed till 90. And, and what happened there is that they asked me, it was, a, it was a, no light in the tunnel. It was March of 89. And I was, I'd been on the board uh, almost five years of finishing up. And in fact, I had just uh, gotten off the board at that time. And they came in and said, we're changing things. We don't think you guys know how to run a, a company. And, you know, we were in that, in the real estate depression in Texas. East Coast, they it wasn't affected. The West Coast wasn't affected. And so they didn't fully understand it. And they changed some things. And they said, you know, we're going to run the company from California. And that wasn't the deal. It was it was a family of companies because all these companies we bought had great leaders, you know, and they woven themselves into the fabrics of all these communities and cities that they were operating in. And Ellis didn't pay attention to that, had a big ego. And there were a few other things that kind of affected his ego that caused him to say, okay, I'm going to consolidate everything out here in San Francisco. And took me 30 seconds to say, if you can do that, I'm leaving. I, I had grown the commercial. Actually, I had grown my development company and management company. I had 125 people. And I, during this period, I, I reduced it down to 75. I was up above. Henry gave me the floor. I was still running the commercial operation of the company. And my uh, operation became the biggest customer of Henry Miller Company. Every commission, every deal done was run through Henry Miller. Totally compatible. It was amazing. I mean, you know, it took a guy that big to let me do something like that. And it was wonderful, you know. But then when it became something that, you know, they're breaking the word, they didn't understand what was happening in Texas. Then I decided to leave. And my people thought it was April 4th, you know, you know. Up until that point, had you not thought about leaving and starting your own deal? Like you were fully, you were fully committed to being part of a larger company? That oh, I had. I was planning to do that, but I had separated everything. I got, uh, I was on my own accounting system. I had my people up on a separate floor 
and everything. And I liked Hal Ellis, you know, I liked uh, the team. And I thought, but what happened is, is that I think, I think he made some, some bad decisions. When you, real quick, why did it not affect the coast, but it affected Texas? Because it was savings, it was the savings alone problem in Texas. Okay. You know, savings loans, there was fraud, you know, with Faulkner starting out there, out east of Sam Braburn Lake and Rockwall. And it, it just proliferated through a lot of the multifamily development and the type of loans they were getting. I forget his name, who's the head of savings alone that made loans. And the fraud was they thought they owned the savings loan. They put up 3%. And 97 it was government money. So they thought that they could go ahead and charge six six points for a loan and give you 100% loan. And then you, I'm going to lend you the 8%, the, 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 I, I'm going to lend you the the fee and you pay me back and I take it as income. Mm-hmm. And that's that took the savings loan down. And so that was a big thing. Everybody was, everybody was taking savings loan money but me. For anybody that thinks we've gone through a real estate recession over the last couple of years, what does the last couple of years compare to what you remember about 86 to 90? Nothing. <laughs> it's a zero. It's a blip, blip on the radar screen. This is a blip on the radar yeah. screen. In fact, what we learned in 86 to 90, we changed everything, structure of the company, the financial structure, I mean, and what we, when, when 08 came 18 years later, after, uh, you know, uh, we, we, you know, got out of it in, in 1990. It was not even, we'd covered uh, uh, the cracks in the armor, you know, where we were exposed and we were, made it through without uh, any problem. And, and going through this last cycle here uh, has, has not been a problem. You think 86 to 90 could happen again, or was it something about the, the way things were back then that really? Anything, anything could happen. Yeah. yeah. I think, uh, you know, just to Jamie Dimon, you know, most important things be, be liquid. You got to be able to go through these cycles and real estate is fragile. If you got a, you know, bad recession or depression, a lot of debt. Yeah. Well, was there ever a point in that, that four or five years where you're like, man, I just want to get into a new industry. This isn't any fun. Never had time to think about it because yeah. the biggest problem was 80, you know, the 86 to 90. When Trumbull Crow and Lincoln Property Company and and all these companies that were building, growing, and and the market was really, really had going into this cycle was really, really good, and they all became a liquid. And Trumbull restructured his company. Lincoln restructured their company. I restructured my company. Didn't take bankruptcy. Was able to trade assets with the bank and get everything worked out, and got cleaned up with the banking system very quickly. Because you had like $170 million of loans mm-hmm. yeah. going into that period. I did, and it, it was just about all with Republic Bank. And that's when uh, Richard, you know, remember Richard Rainwater's conversation with me a year before in 88, and this was now in 89, and I left Ellis, and I had no idea what I was gonna do. I, I uh, had everything pretty much uh, separated, you know, now up on the upper floor from what uh, Miller's office, from Miller's office. And uh, the first thing I did was call, call Richard after I met with my team. said, let's see if he has the interest because he had already done 
a deal with Starbucks and come in and with Roger to buy the assets out of the bank. And he, as a result of that, he would own percentage of the company of all the assets that I had. And then also he would have a interest in the properties going forward. And Richard never wanted to own the majority of any company. He always just wanted to be there with an active partner and somebody he had confidence in to grow the company. And so we, we struck a deal. It was uh, the week of July 4th. And his wife was up in uh, the Hamptons and he came over on a Saturday and a Sunday and at my house and we struck a deal. And he was going to own uh, 12.5%. So he uh, didn't end up owning it. Not what he said. He said, look, if you ever do the deal without me, he said, that's fine, Herb. He said, but this is my deal. And this is pretty much what he did with, with Roger. And Roger and I communicate and friend today because he worked with Miller. And when he was with Miller, we were friends. And so what happened is, is he comes back to me after about four months of negotiating with the bank. And uh, the bank wants $90 million as a settlement. And he's at 75. And he comes in and he says, Herb, I just, I'm not, you know, getting the deal done with these guys. And I was shocked. I thought he was going to make the deal. You know, it's somewhere, you know, maybe a little shy of 90, but it was going to get done. And that was it. But all through all those meetings, you know, us first meeting with Jim Irwin, the head of the Bad Bank. And from that first meeting, we went there and 13 people were there. And I said, why is there many people here? And everybody wanted to see, you know, meet Richard Rainwater. They didn't know him. And he spoke, you know, about me being a 25-year customer, making all this money for the bank. And I, I told him after, I said, I wish my mother could have heard that. You know, <laughs> being such a, you know, it's just a wonderful, wonderful backing to enter into try these negotiations. But he couldn't do it, dejected, and I had no idea what I was going to do. And in the negotiations, the bank said they were never going to take back, they were going to take it, they didn't want any land. They just didn't want any land. Because land was just dropping. It was liquid. It was the worst. And so four weeks after, that was that was such a shock to Republic Bank. They came to me, and I got a phone call from the bank and said, look, we'll make a deal with you at 85, and we will take back any assets you have. We'll take back any land, and that was it. And I made the deal myself with the bank. Did you make the deal because you had to make the deal or you just felt like it was the smartest option? Had to make it. Yeah. Had to make it. Were, were there any just, I'm sure you said I didn't have time to think about anything else. Heading into that whole thing, did it kind of, was everything chugging along and then all of a sudden like the floor fell out or could you see it coming for a while? I'm well, talking about maybe leading it, it, into 86. It was, uh, it was onward and upward. After saving on the regulation, 81, 82, things got, 83, 84, 85, it was really ramping up and everybody was developing. Money was plentiful and everything. And then it was like uh, February of 86 was when the Tax Reform Act was passed. It didn't grandfather any write-offs. And, and that, that was just a cutoff. So every everyone had a bad loan. Yeah. And because the properties were overvalued because they weren't getting... They were taking tax write-offs off of the interest, and you couldn't. You, it, it was it was no more write-off of the interest, and it was dollar for dollar at that time, and that's what happened to land business, land syndication. Yeah. Everybody put money in land and take a dollar for dollar write-off on their ordinary income. So that was a a turning point. That that that's where it started. 
then the deal started to to fail. I mean, I went to auction after auction, and you know when the RTC was formed to handle all the disposition of all these assets. So when you signed the deal with the bank at eighty five million. Were you really optimistic now that that was behind you or was it kind of like, shit, I'm going to have to work my ass off for a long time to get out of a hole? Or did you kind of feel like restart, let's go back and get it all back? Well, I, I had in 90, 94, this is just four years late after 90, after I, I got out, I was going to take the company public and farm a REIT. So I had 92. Weitzman? Yeah. It's 92 properties. Is the three hundred twenty-five million market cap, and so when I got out, I needed capital, so I had to sell some 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 really great assets to generate capital to get, to operate. But then I was looking forward to growing it. Well, what happened is is when I went public with Goldman Sachs, they were taking me out, and market turned, and that's when first of the REITs were coming out. They, uh, Simon went out, JBJ few others and the rates were going up, the dividend rates were going up that you had to sell at and it was gonna cost me too much as they were increasing. They said, well let's just wait a few months. So I waited six months and they called me back and they said, well nine and a half, I was going out at eight. They said nine and a half, it was too costly. At that time I didn't need, you know, the market turned good after ninety and we started doing okay on the brokerage side and and started leasing up the properties. And so I didn't go public. I, I pulled it off off the shelf and stay private. Never had to worry about got capital. And shortly after that, I went into a partnership with GE Capital for 16 years. It was their shopping center partner in the country. Uh, they came to me and asked me because I, I was a small borrower with them and they liked us. And so we just built, bought a lot over the, over the, those 16 years. And I was able to, they gave me a chance to recap them. So on most of those assets, I was able to recap and bring in new partners. And I stayed with them. They got out and got and took earnings. All right, have you always been the chief capital raiser? Or do you have people on your team? I miss you own a lot. So to take out GE Capital, is it you always bring in the new partners, or how, how do you think about that? Oh yeah, I bring in partners a lot. Yeah, yeah uh, I do. And it's just that's how we grow. You know, rather than being public and taking money through the public market, I bring in somebody like GE Capital who's there. And has they're on the committee with having two other people on the committee with me. They're wanting to invest, and so I got it's very very fluent. And by me, you know, if I'd have gone public, I mean, I, I talked to some of these guys after you know fifteen years that they own the company. They diluted and diluted and diluted. They might own three percent of the stock. Right. I still own one hundred percent of my company. Now I don't own, every, own everything in the partnerships. I love the partnerships, and people have been with me different levels. I mean, individuals, I might have families with me for three generations. Yep. And then with the, with people like GE or USAA or, or Fees Capital or Thackeray Fund or all these companies, you know, I mean, we have great relationships with them. These are great partners. And so it is much less expensive because we operate entrepreneurially rather than having to report and have all these people to, you know, deal with, with all these REIT laws. All right. So we'll kind of fast forward a little bit. So it's been a little over 30 years since 90. Y'all now looks like you have a retail portfolio about 44 million feet. Why have you always chosen to stay in Texas? It doesn't really appear to me like y'all are outside of Texas. Is that true? That's true. 
I'm assuming you've had all the opportunity in the world to go mm -hmm. across the country. And why have you chosen not to do that? Texas has been so great. <laughs> it's been so active. We, we've had a hard time catching our breath. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, we could have set up divisions outside of Texas, you know, in Grubbinellas. I had all these people, you know, I mean, Phoenix and Colorado and Florida, you know, I mean, that I had great relationship with these people, you know, in the company and the brokers. But I think that real estate, you have to stay real close to, you know, the action and, and real close to the properties. And I saw Trammell, you know, Henry Miller was best friends with Trammell Crow, and they were two floors over our office. And so, I, you know, I did business with them through different categories because I spent a lot of time early on in industrial properties. And, you know, they were heavy in industrial, and, and I got no trammel. And I saw him, uh, he came to me to be his partner in retail, to take the, and grow all over the country. And I didn't do it for one reason, and that was because the partners that ran those cities, all the assets that would be in that city would be crossed. And when I was doing with Henry, starting off, it was not crossed. Every asset stood on its own. So that was a reason I decided not to do that with Trammell. But also, I wasn't in love with just going all of these other cities and being under the control of somebody who covers that region. Right. And so I passed on that. And I think that that model that he had, he got spread out so much that they really didn't know what they were buying. And they had such a hard time. And so I, I saw that and I really realized that if I could just be in the, and Trammell was encouraged Henry Miller to go to, we were just in Dallas to go to these other cities. So I, I did, I took the company with my division to Houston, Santone, Austin. So I got to know those cities and I was still in Miller. And so, but all the, but I was developing, had developed an operation in those cities and everything. And I was able to just see that Texas by that time was really, really growing. And we just needed to gain market share in every city. Yep. And that's what we did rather than getting spread out. And I learned early by, by going over with Kroger over to Paris, Texas and Texarkana that I was driving there and driving back. And I, Henry Miller was in Dallas. I was taking care of all the leasing. It was, it just didn't make sense. Got it done. Learned a lesson early, very early. And this consolidating your activity in a major city that's growing, it just checked all the boxes. Because I have philosophy through the brokerage company, that's where you learn the market. Take care of the customer first, do your research, you become an expert. That's a, a tattoo that's on my back. Take care of your customer and learn the market. As we look at Texas just today, mm -hmm. are you as bullish on Texas today as you've ever been? More so. Oh, why? Mm -hmm. Well, nobody talks about the oil. You know, you don't, you don't hear anybody talking about the oil much. That's a dirty word these days. Yeah, I know it's a dirty word, but they're, they're, they're the largest, the largest you know, reserves in the world. So I kind of think that even though they're talking about, you know, moving to all the cars by 35, they still got to keep some running, you know, so you might not be able to buy one as a gas guzzler. What data from a retail perspective do you see? And what we can chat about, everybody thought that retail was dead. It's not dead, is it? Not dead at all. And uh, <laughs> it's really better than ever. But 
I can't talk too much about it because I'm going to invite you over to uh, January 11th. We we an, do an annual forecast, and Perfect. it's over at the Bush Library. Okay, about 450 people, all everybody connected heavily to retail and commercial. You'll see a lot of guys you know there, and we just finished our survey. I was uh, actually going through the draft of it last night, and it's awesome. Can't wait to hear it. So maybe you know I can come over with you, or you come over with me, okay. and we. We talk about the forecast because it's uh, the best we've ever done. And I've got uh, one of the most exciting guys in the country coming in to do a one-on-one dialogue with me. Oh, we really? always have a fireside chat. We get these people that I've had fireside chats with are just great. You know, chairmans of Neiman's, chairman of Penny's, you know, Craig Hall, Ross Perot, you know, different guys, you know, mayor, yeah. you know, things like that. There's vital interest to everybody that's there. They come, they, 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 we want to give them a lot to take home. And now I've got the top guy with JP Morgan in the world. He's over their alternative investments mm-hmm. and about 180 billion he runs. That's and a He's an awesome guy. Went up to New York and met him a week and a half ago. And I think it's going to be great. I can't wait. Yeah. So he, he's Is this kind an of, official invite? Kind of, yeah, it's officially. He's kind of a futurist. He's kind of a futurist. So it'll be some, you know, uh, answer, question and answer period. And, but just hear the question, hear the answer. Everybody's going to really gain a lot because this guy is buying all over the world, you know, with their alternative investments. So he's really, really great. What's kind of your management or leadership philosophy on on new men and women kind of getting into the brokerage business? Well, we have always, we were the first at Hitler Miller to bring in women in commercial. And that's really been a great decision. And we've got some great women in, in, in brokerage. In fact, even in like our management of the properties, we have probably about 30 managers there in Dallas and, and they're probably 97% women now. It yep. used to be all men and just really good at it. And, and so that's a change. And with the young people, we love to train people our way and they can grow and do everything they they want to do, be a partner, go into a partnership with the company. And even, one thing you can't do is just have their name on the sign. It costs too much to replace those 2,000 signs I got in Dallas. <laughs> 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 yeah. So, so uh, we, we, we love to train and bring them in. And, boy, they really turn out good. Some of them do, some don't. How can we, you tell if someone's not going to turn out? Well... They don't take it seriously. They don't have a passion. They taking shortcuts. They're, they're not competing well. We named our company named the the real estate school at University of Texas Dallas. There's 800 students in the in the business school. Business school's got 11,000 now, and it's ranked number 10 in the country in public universities. Wow. Yeah. So we're we're real active there. So, but we we hire out of about seven universities in in Texas primarily. We prefer to hire somebody that says, I'm going to come to your company and they might be at A&M, but I, I'm from Houston. So we'd like to say, we'll hire you, but we'd like you to go to Houston where you know that market, you feel comfortable in that market. Any, mar- any market's good in Texas. They're all good. Austin's awesome. You know, it's just phenomenal. And in a conversation with head of real estate in this region for Whole Foods this morning, mm-hmm. early on, just talking about Texas and, you know, they're based in Austin and the growth and so forth. So it's just the place to be. And the young people are going to keep coming here. 
because the laws were good and the corporations now I mean, turned into a financial center of the country, second to New York. But even Texas has more people from J.P. Morgan, largest bank in the world, than in New York. They get 30,000 here and 28,000 up there now. And they're hiring more here. You know, Wells has come here, tons of people. So distribution, manufacturing, electronics, universities, you know, it's good. Good. Checking all the dots. All right. Speaking of checking all the dots, what makes like a good retail deal? And I know there's different types of retail. Yeah. And what do people get wrong that you see over and over when you drive by and you're like, I cannot believe they did that. We would never do that. They turn center backwards. Okay, what's that mean? <laughs> they turn it, turn it. They face it the wrong way. When money was was flowing out of the savings loan, loans in the early 80s and people were getting money, they never had built one. I mean, they built them backwards. They built it where, you know, the, you know, the stores would face inward and have no visibility of the street. What were they thinking? That's a good question. They weren't thinking. They were just getting money shoveled at them, and they thought they just would go build something. Okay, so it's got to face the street. Yeah. What, what else? There's oh, got to well, be something else well, to it. Well, the better centers have the better anchors. Okay. And you'll see a lot of centers that are really messed up. And you have to build the center to the socioeconomic area of the, of the trade area. If it's high, you got to go high. If it's medium, you got to go. You got to go medium. You got to go above medium. If it's low, you got to go above low. You got to do the best you can in quality of merchants and price points for the market you're serving. Yep. Now, restaurants have have saved the community center business because it was a transition of bigger retail stores, you know, jewelry stores and 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 big shoe stores and and some nice apparel that were in the community centers. Most of those went to the power centers, and the power center just it's a was it twenty about 23 years old. I mean, you know, it started in 1990. So that's 20, not 30 years old. And so that's where most of the bigger stores went and they took a lot of business from the department stores, kind of gnawed at the underbelly of the department store business. That's why they're weak right now. But they also, you know, ended up with some of the community centers. So the community center stores went there just because there was more traffic and they were bigger. But finally, we retinted those by three categories. One was restaurants, two were medical, and then three were about 200, 250 categories of service tenants with a grocery store. It serves a real purpose, you know, for people to get what they need, necessities close by. And now the community centers are doing great. I mean, there's 74 million feet in DFW and, you know, it's 96% occupied. Yeah. Fort Worth's got 40 main feet of community centers. What's the difference between kind of suburban retail and then like retail you'd find in uptown urban retail? Well, urban retail, a lot of urban retail is on the ground level of the apartment houses or mm-hmm. the office buildings. You can't have something that happened, you know, there's a little nice little retail strip across from the Crescent on McKinney Avenue. That was built a long time ago when prices were really, really cheap. But today, you know, around the mile of this building has been property sale at at least 500 a foot. So you you can't build a retail. It's a adjunct to something else today. Right. It's it's something that the city requires maybe to have 10,000 feet of retail in your space. They want walk walkability or they, you know, require affordable housing and some bigger apartment projects. 
Yeah. So where you end up with retail in uptown or urban is you buy another building that's already there. Right. And you pay a top price for it. Do you prefer one over the other? Yeah. Buy. Buy, don't develop. Buy, don't develop. You can. The numbers don't work. In fact, the numbers don't even work today on, we're building 4 million feet. And if we didn't You're have- You're building 4 million right 4 now? 4 million feet. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're really active. I mean, you want me to tell you a little bit about what they are? Yeah. San Antonio got 112 acres at the intersection of the outer loop and 35, good corner. And we have Ikea in 300,000 feet now. We have floor decor. We're making a deal with the House of Sports, which is, you haven't seen one here yet. It's 120,000 feet. That's the great new concept that uh, Dick Sporting Goods has created. And there's only 12 in the country that have been open. And we are making one there in the center. We have a restaurant park, you know, with DJ Brewery, Olive Garden, Longhorn Steakhouse, and strips and so forth. Now, you know, we got a gym that's going to go in there, 40,000 foot gym. Okay. That's a million feet that that's going to be. That IKEA goes all the way, serves all the way down to the Mexican border. So it, it's a barn burner. And then we have a half million feet over on Interstate Highway 10, which is a growth area there in San Antonio. And that's going to have uh, 550,000 feet. And we have a, a Walmart superstore there. Then we have some other stores built. We're just doing it in phases because we have the land free and clear. If we had to go and buy that land and pay the price that land costs today and not know when you're going to get an answer, I mean, it's a good path to go broke. How long have you owned that land? Long time. Like more than five years? Yeah. At least uh, probably uh, 11. Okay. Yeah. Bought it from, you know, one of the servicing companies. Okay. Yeah. So got it. I think at that, uh, the purchase price on it going in for that was $3.15 a foot. So worth, but, it's probably worth a little more but, than that. But it was the nastiest piece of land you've ever seen. In fact, the uh, Joris, the large construction company that we hired to clear the land, and when you saw that it was shrubs and snakes, you know, and all kinds of stuff in there. And this guy that says, he says, I want to tell you, Herbie, he says, I live nearby, and I never noticed this site here before. <laughs> it's the southwest corner of this generational corner mm-hmm. because it was such a mess. Right. And so cleaned up with roads and everything's beautiful now. Then in uh, Houston, we have a project downtown of Manville, which is 288 south of the medical center, about 20 minutes. And you have highways at the corner of Highway 6 that goes over to Sugarland, and we're building a million there. We just opened uh, HEB, and we have Lowe's going in with home improvement, a bunch of restaurants going in, and it's being built in phases, probably two or three phases. We had to put the whole district in. We had to put the water sewer plant in, which I never had any experience doing. And we put the roads in. We got a lot of incentive money, but we got to go sell the bonds to get that money back. Right. Don't recommend it for anybody. But we're in it, and uh, we sold that land over about a 12-year period. It was assembled in 10-acre tracks. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, when, real quick. When we're talking about Ikea, that's a big deal. Yeah. It's serving all the way down to the border. Uh-huh. Is Ikea out in the market looking at different? How do you get Ikea in your deal? I'm sure everybody wanted Ikea in their deal. Yeah, everybody wants Ikea, but I think that they slowed down their development. This is probably one of the last deals Ikea did. Okay. Now, in Southlake, they just put in an Ikea internet store where you can you can digitally order anything in the store, in a 10,000-foot store they just went into Parks Village right there next to 
the shops at Southlake. By the way, South and Southlake is one centrally built with Central Market. Okay. Grace Center. You still own it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do, you, do you ever sell? Not much. Not much? No. No. Okay. Don't have to. Okay, but how'd you get Ikea? Ikea? The 300,000 footer. Yeah, went to them. And, and so we didn't build for them. They wanted to come in San Antonio, and we were one of about four sites, and we, we, we got them, and we sold them 30 acres. And they own that 30 acres out of the 112 acres. So they'll 100% own their own property. Yeah, but, but we ended up entering into a development agreement with them and it got an incentive agreement with the city that the city gave us $27 million for, you know, because we had all this cost in the, in the, the roads and the development cost. And so that worked, worked out good. So we, we split that with IKEA. So we end up, just because we got, Ikea, we got $13.5 million. goes toward our, our expenses. When you think about those huge, massive developments with all those tenants, mm-hmm. how much of that is Weitzman being in the market for so long that you can pick up the phone and just call those tenants and start knocking them down versus any guy that has a lot of money that goes and buys a big track of land? It, could they pull it off the same way or does it take retail's real interesting in that you got to know the tenants and every big retailer I know, a retail landlord, you know, my buddy owns $30, $40 generals. They own tons of this. They can just pick up the phone and get another one done. How much of that for y'all on these massive sites is kind of already knowing who the tenants are going to be and just picking up the phone and making it happen? That's about 98% of it. That's the whole game. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's about the relationships that, you know, cause we're, we're, we're heavily in the brokerage business and we bring partners into these transactions. So we're the sponsor and we have relationships with all these people, you know, and in fact, I just came from a meeting, you know, we got to meet Wednesday with the company that's wanting us to just, I just getting prepped on a, one of the major, you know, national chains, wanting us to JV with them and be a partner with them. So, you know, those are, you just earn those things. I mean, that's just being here, being available, doing a good job all the time. Main thing is they make money with us. Right. Yeah, because we 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 really focus on tenant. We'll keep a space vacant and go after the right tenants that we know cross set where there's cross selling done, and everybody does better rather than just put in some off color use or some X rated store or stuff like that. You know, something that we typically don't put surplus at all in the center. We have Goodwill in, and Goodwill's turned out to be, you know, because of change and you know how second generation clothes are looked at. I mean, the young people, it's the style. So it, it, they become a, uh, a tenant in a lot of these centers, particularly much, in Austin. So you have to pay attention to the, the brands and walk in their other stores and get to really know them. Sure. You're as much a, a retailer mm-hmm. from a perspective of a customer as you are their landlord. Yeah. You have to know it'll work and, yeah. and what won't work. Yeah, I mean, I'm calling them up all the time, telling them, hey, your sign's not looking good at night. <laughs> you know, and the, the what? It's looked in the day. I said, yeah, but when the light goes on at nighttime, all you see is all black. Something's gone wrong with your system up there. You know, they didn't know it because they're not there at nighttime. And then, you know, we just give them suggestions. I remember going in a, a Kroger in South Arlington and they wanted me to look at a remodel job they did. And so I go there and go through one door then I go through another door. Then I have to go to another door to get inside. And I call up the head. I said, 
here. I said, you know, I don't know if you meant to do this, but I said, I got to go through three doors to get in your in your front door. <laughs> he said, really? I said, well, let me go check. He calls me back. He says, you know, you're right. He says, they, they built that whole thing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, you just, we're always having that, that type of conversation with him. You still drive around and look at your centers? And- All the time. I mean, I mean, I drive Saturday just to look, you know, look at land and areas that are growing and so forth. That's what you do on Saturdays? Yeah, I do a lot, a lot of that mm-hmm. Saturday afternoon. First thing I do is I get out and go biking with my buddies around White Rock. You still bike? Oh, every, almost every day. Speaking of working out, there's a story uh, somebody told me here that said, I heard her would run on the track early in the mornings for exercise in the dark, and his junior brokers would have to run with him. Ask him if it was to discuss their business plan or if he was just teaching them to exercise. I was talking about their business plan. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we, we ran for years, uh, probably 18 years up at SMU. Meet up there at 545 in the morning. Rain, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Rain, tornado, You're hurricane, there. we're there. And so we'd get out there, but the guys would always want to talk. And I said, come on out. So first, first lap, they were really good, having a good conversation. <laughs> Second lap, slowed down. Third lap, almost nothing. Fourth lap, they were dying. So they, they, quit got, after, they quit after the fourth lap. They got good at telling their business plan pretty concise, get it done in that first lap, or they're <laughs> right. never going to get it or done. you're not going to be able to handle it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we did that a lot. In fact, every, you know, I don't know why we quit, but that, that uh, something happened. When you think about just what's gone on with construction prices and pricing, how have y'all adapted to it? Or like what comes to your mind when I tell you like construction prices are up? Well, as I have mentioned, numbers don't work. With interest rates uh, going up to eight and a half percent, you know, from three to four, and costs have gone up. Before we went into this rise in interest rate, we we just finished a building in San Antonio for forty eight bucks a foot for a strip, and now cost one hundred fifty. See, so you can see that the the retailers certainly are not proactive in increasing their rents. Yeah, they don't do that. They they give you tremendous resistance until they realize they can't get any stores because the numbers don't work. Right. So they have to pay more to get a deal done. Yep. It's, it's still working. And this morning with the head of the region and the grocery chain came in to talk, said their prices are still going up. One of the major cranes that you, you, buy, you, buy, you buy groceries at. That's the situation right now that, and here's what, what's happened. We were really doing well going to 19, but when the pandemic hit, really things really stopped. And what happened is, is we've been through so many cycles and a lot of guys really dropped off after the cycle. They decided couldn't make a deal work. They got into other, other categories or they dropped out of the business. Yeah. I'm not saying they didn't have some money. They sold everything, but they just didn't want to put it back at risk. And I don't blame them because there's a, you know, the numbers weren't working. Yep. And so they now are, it's a smaller group that's developing. And if you're cold, if you haven't been in the market with contractors pricing, repricing, repricing, changing, you know, from steel to wood frame or whatever you're exploring, what happened most of them, but when they found they had three or four thousand a month overheads, you know, and no deals, they start cutting their people. Right. So what happens is they, they've lost their capability. Yep. And now there's not a lot of deals out there. Right. See, so for them to go build it back up, they don't have any pipeline of deals. So right now, the the market is in the best condition it's been in ever. 
because of no new building or very little new building. And the occupancy is so great. Right. Because of the densification that's taking place, you know, every year for the last 10 years, 150, 200,000 people moving here. So it's really good. But then you still can't build because the rents are gradually going up to make the deals work. Right. So we'll see. There's a lot of deals planned now, but, you know, anything could happen. Right. You know, interest rates aren't going to come down as everybody as fast as people think. And we don't know about cost. It's a lot of questions. So there's the anchors are going to be driving it pretty much. And then if somebody goes and bills, they're just trying to keep their pay their overhead and selling. And hopefully they're going to make some money right at the end. When you said the anchors drive it, you just mean a big anchor absolutely needs something and they'll make the economics work for a developer. Yeah. 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 And that's where you you win by owning the land. Yeah. Because you don't have to go. Now you got accrual there, but you can play with that accrual, which means you're not, you don't owe it to a bank. So what's your land strategy? You'll just go to an investor and say, look, we're going to, we think this is great land. It's a ways out and we're just going to land bank it for X amount of years until the right development mm-hmm. comes to us. Yeah. They, they, uh, they're long-term players. Cause you said 11 or 12 years. Well, that's sometimes. Yeah. 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 But uh, that's always the plan. Sometimes you'll see somebody with, that maybe has the nod from one of the big users, uh, to go, they'll do that occasionally, but they're all expanding so slow, except HEB and HEB buys everything. When you're taking a big piece of land out of your portfolio and developing it, are you always looking to kind of replenish your land position? Are mm-hmm. you always kind of buying some more? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there any formula to it or just no kind of whatever? We're, looks- just, we're just trying to keep up the growth. Yeah. And the, and it doesn't make any difference. You know, it can be out, you know, 30 east or 30 west or, you know, north or, or southwest or something. You know, we, we try to stay in areas, you know, where people want to be. If we were sitting here 10 years from now, like if you really think of Frisco, I mean, it's probably more like 14 years ago, but Frisco was goat pasture not too long ago. Right. Now it's, mm-hmm. is there any other areas of DFW, if we were sitting here 10 years from now, that said you aren't going to believe what's going to happen to this place over the next 10 years? What What's something to get excited about around DFW? Well, I think you take, you take uh, probably 180 degrees and you go out 30 east uh-huh. and you go all the way around in a fan that goes over toward East Plano and all of Plano and all of Frisco. And then you go on over to the the areas uh, west of 35. You go on over to, you know, uh, uh, 377. You know, you, you go up to Aubrey. You go up all the way over to the mid-cities. And then, you know, you have all those areas around Fort Worth that are they're growing, you know, to the west. And you can't buy them all. You know, you just have to go pick the be- where, where you think is the best value and where it's most likely to happen for the the retailer to come in yeah. because most of the time they really want to buy. So they, they really don't want you to be buying the land. So that's why we buy, buy before, because if you're out there, it, you know, with, with a good site, you have a lot of leverage to make a deal with them right? on a lease. Why do they usually want to own just cause? Cause cheaper. They can, they all have development capability and they can build and own and keep it or, they can turn around and put a rent on it, cap it and sell it, make money. So like when Ikea buys that 30 acres from you, how much of a say do you have in the design of their building or the layout or? We have say in the layout, they 
I don't know of I don't know of uh, IKEA that they've leased. In fact, I've represented. I brought Target to to Texas, and I did about seventy deals with them. And you know, after we you know had done a lot of deals, they said, "Can you develop with us?" I said, "Yeah." So we built a bunch of centers with them. Still have them with Target, but Target won't own Target. Didn't didn't want to. I don't I don't know of a of a deal that they leased until I think I was the first ground lease they made, which was in a center in Austin in called Capital Plaza. But we tore down a Montgomery Ward building on 35 by the university, and they have a ground lease there. Now they've gone more into ground leases because people just won't sell to them. You know, if they have a great site, people want to make a lease, a ground lease with them. All right. Amazon, I guess, has been around long enough and that everybody thought Amazon was just going to wipe out mm-hmm, everybody. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. clearly hadn't been true. Hadn't been true. Retail is actually not dead. Is there anything that comes to mind by way of innovation in the space or how retailers are now thinking that will change the way we as consumers interact with retail over the next 10 years? Or is it mostly going to be some of the same stuff? Like, is there any groundbreaking innovation coming that the common guy like me, not in real retail, would just not be thinking about? Well, I can't. Next wave is AI. And I don't I don't know. My people are, are playing with it right now. But I don't know how it's going to affect the customer. Yep. But, you know, the Amazon merger, that was with John Mackey there. Nobody even. With Whole could, Foods? Yeah, Whole Foods. Nobody could even tell that Amazon was their partner. I mean, owned the company because they left it so autonomous. But I think they're getting into it now. And I think that they're going to make some, they know more about the food industry. And a guy that came up, you know, with, Mackey, who was the chief operating officer, he really understands the people and what the young people like. So he's carrying, carrying the flag. And I think that's a good thing. However, I think that with their capability with Amazon, they're going to be doing some, some unique things. They do a tremendous job inside the stores. They do so many renovations of take over other buildings. And like in New York, they're maybe have 11 stores there now. And they, or in renovations of department stores or whatever, or parking garage over in Jersey, you know, they've got real capable on taking things and make them original. Right. Yeah. HEB is good at that too. Kroger and Tom Thumb aren't. They're, you know, get one model, one interior motif, they follow it. You can go over to Live Oak where they put some funky stuff in there because it's over there in that area near Deep Elm. And so they've got graphics and stuff like that. And I think the president says, he says, look, I didn't go to them, get an estimate. He said, I knew they weren't going to approve it. I just told them to do it. <laughs> you know, so it's funky stuff in that that one right there on Live Oak, just east of town. So you think Amazon's bought Whole Foods? They've just kind of been, obviously they've been an active owner, but they've more been collecting data, understanding how it all works. And you think we'll see more from them over the next decade than we saw from them in the decade since they've owned it. Yeah. I think what they'll see and what the, one of the big things they're going to see is they're going to see their capital. You know, they're going to be able to do things because they, they, you know, they had, didn't have that much money, you know I mean? To spend on certain things. And now Whole foods will, yeah, whole, whole, whole foods will be able to have to do things and they're ramping back up, you know, to do, to be a, be a growth, growth company now. And so we'll see how that goes. But, it takes a long time to do one of their stores. I mean, they've, they've been in deals on this conversion and all this type of stuff that they do. Some sort of take six or seven, eight years to do until it gets open. 
Yeah. How many Whole Foods have you done? We've only done two. Do you want to do more? I'd like to, yeah. Mm-hmm. But they're not yeah. prolific. So what happens is, you know, it's been so long, you can't go spend a lifetime right, on a deal. You got a ticker. Anytime right. you touch a touch a piece of dirt, you're either, it's got accrual or it's got an interest rate on it, and it's not free. You have to get these deals done. And if you miss one, you got to be able to carry it. You think delivery is going to keep ramping up, whether it's food delivery, all this other delivery? I mean, we had food delivered last night. I mean, it was so, you, when you really think about the additional cost to the cost of if you just go pick it up, it's, it's getting pretty high. Mm-hmm. You think the trend is more delivery or do you think we're realizing that if the VCs aren't subsidizing a lot of this delivery cost, it, it's actually pretty expensive to take it at home. And I'm more, I'm not talking about Amazon. I'm talking about delivery from your grocery store, deliver from your typical retail tenant. I think the, the, after the pandemic, I think people really like going back to the stores. I mean, we saw restaurants, you know, get used to where people would eat on the patio. Well, what we did, we went to every shopping center and we talked to the restaurants and this, we gave them patio. Patio cost 2,500 bucks. I put the railing up and we gave them that free because to see people sitting out and also increasing their sales with those extra seats out on the patio, it's been great for the, for the community center. Yep. And they have got so many people that want to, you know, they have some enclosed, but they have fans and they have heaters. But I like to eat out on a patio a lot. Yeah. First of all, it's, sometimes it's like, it's like why do you have a, a, a better conversation? I mean, Nick, Nick and Sam is across the street from our front door, and we go there a lot. And I tell you, you know, we shammed every night. It's kind of hard to talk. Yeah. You know, they don't have any patio, but it's iconic, you know. Yeah. And so I think that the online buying is, has, has kind of, it, it went up to 20%. It's come down now. But people like to buy and like to get a present. Yeah. They like, my wife, I think, just likes to have something that, is delivered to her and it's like comes in like a present. It makes you feel good. I got something today. I think there's some psychology to it. I don't disagree with yeah, that. Uh-huh. I don't know if the guys guys like that that much, but but the women just love it. I have a funny, they're they're they they're the eighty seven percent of the shoppers anyway. It's Nick and Sam's and then there was Nick and Sam's grill next door, right? Are they both still open? And uh, it's it's not it's Nick and Sam's. It never never had a grill. It was all. But didn't they open up a second restaurant? Yeah, out on, on Preston Road. Okay, <clears throat> they closed it. Yeah, they just have the one, and it it does a lot. The main steakhouse. Main steakhouse, and now with Heinz growing across the street from us, with that took the Maple Terrace building. I don't know if you're over there. It's now turned into an office building, and they built a 26 story apartment building right behind it. Yeah, and and they put under construction catch, which is out of Aspen seafood right there. And then right on the other uh, front of the building, those mesos and that's Mexican food. So now that's becoming the hot corner in uptown and I'm on the other one. <laughs> before it was, it was uh homeless people and things when I first moved in 33 years ago, but now it's turned out to be the major corner in uptown. Do you own the office building? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's probably going to end up being a good deal. So it's a good deal, but you're not. It's not for sale. Well, we, we paid it off, and now we we put a little debt on it, and we've remodeled the whole building. All right, what does work look like for you today? You've been in this industry for a long time. You've seen a lot. 
I, it appears to me after our conversation today, you're as energized about it as ever. Yeah. So what's, what does work look like? Work is enjoyable, immensely enjoyable. You know, fun is like me going, like I am Saturday to get on the ski slopes. Yeah. Or go down to Galveston where I have a condo and walk in, in rubbing sand and to, uh, the, you know, the, my toes in the sand. But it's very, it's just so enjoyable, you know, to be a part with the team. You know, it's all about team and all the young people that, you know, sometimes they look at you, you know, like deer in headlights when you talk to them, but they finally get it and see them grow. And then, you know, we have so many great clients that we just, you know, love to take care of. Yeah. And I think we're so blessed just to be in a city like, you know, Dallas, Houston, Central, and Austin, Fort Worth that has so much growth to them, you know, where, you know, it gives uh, somebody the opportunity to really reach a potential if they want to. Yeah. But it's not for, it's not for everybody. Yeah. You know, and so the most of the students, I'll sit there, you know, and I teach a little bit up there at the, the real estate school at UTD. And some of them having a hard time understanding how to be entrepreneurial, you know, because things are so big, things take so much money. So I got to break it down to how little, little bite chips, how you start off and you gain little chips and cut more chips and chips get bigger. And then you learn more and you have to do it. You, you know, you can't, you have to take step by step in this business because there's a lot of legal that you have to know and, and so forth. But that's all part of every day. You know, I come in sometimes and I got a day plan back to back and then so many different things happen, you know, and it's interesting, it's challenging. Now, at some point in time, you know, I'm, I'm a get tired, but, uh, still got a lot of energy and love what I do, love making deals, create a part, create a part of putting deals together. Still like that. I'm not too good at just sitting. Yeah. I'm, I'm more of a doer. Yep. Yeah. So, we built some built some great friendships out of this too, just lifelong friends. I don't know anything better than that. You've done a remarkable job. Well, thanks, Herb. Thanks, thanks for joining me today. Well, enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank Appreciate you. It. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform, or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 